across the city and South Cambridgeshire. On FM, digital and your mobile. Cambridge 105 Radio. I'm going to read you the menu. It's fantastic. So we get better flavour because of the fen soil. I've drunk more beer since I came here and bought my two barrels than I've ever done in my life before, I think. I shouldn't have said almonds, they don't make it from almonds. <laughs> so you've got this big sticky mess when you start off. Pizza pot pints! My wife's cakes are selling up hot cakes. Brilliant, thank you. The time is right for this sort of thing. Food is everything. Cambridge is right for this sort of thing. What's it like? <laughs> Good afternoon. Welcome to Flavour with Alan Alder, Sue Bailey and me, Matt Bentman. And today we look at two food initiatives from a Cambridge perspective, the government's Eat Out to Help Out scheme and, possibly in conflict, the drive to reduce obesity. This week has been National Allotments Week, so we'll have an allotment appreciation. Remaining outdoors, we'll be foraging with Steve Thompson, the foraging chef. And we'll be revisiting our interview of a year ago with food writer Felicity Cloak, whose book One More Croissant for the Road has just been published in paperback. And throughout the programme we'll have news of food and drink in and around Cambridge, plus at the end details of some local jobs in the food industry. Let's begin with the Eat Out to Help Out scheme. The press has reported that more than 10 million meals were sold under the scheme in the first three days, and footfall rose nearly 20% after 6pm across the UK's high streets, shopping centres and retail parks, according to the retail analysis Springboard. The scheme also boosted visitors' numbers between 12 and 2pm when they rose almost 10%. But how has it helped Cambridge restaurants? We asked Max Freeman of Cam's Cuisine, who owns Smokeworks, Millworks, the Cambridge Chop House, the Cock and Hemingford Grey and others, Alex Creppy from Amelie in the Grafton Centre and Tristan Welch, Director of Parker's Tavern in Regent Street, Cambridge. Max Freeman says it has made a huge difference. He sees it as possibly the best thing the government has done. Yeah, it's making a Alex Treppy agrees. Yeah, it is. It's um, definitely giving people the incentive to go out and and spend the money. I mean, it, it was ridiculous how much this thing can actually do to a bill, um, especially for lunchtime, as most of our trade is lunchtime. And here's Tristan Welch with a view from Parker's Tavern. The, the Eat Out to Help Out scheme is doing really well for us. We're fully booked lunch today and dinner tonight. That's uh, so it's Wednesday today, and then next week. I think we've only got one or two spaces left for next week. So it's going very well. Touch wood, touch wood. But as I say to people, you know, um, a, a restaurant's not just for Monday to Wednesday. It's for the whole week. So please come at the rest of the time. Exactly. We really appreciate exactly. it. Really appreciate exactly. it. And that raises the question, is it just shifting trade from the end of the week to the beginning? Max Freeman again making a very positive point, though recognising he's only got one weekend to go on. Well, we've only had one full week of it. There was a slight drop-off on Thursdays and Fridays, but the weekends pretty much held their own. So what it did do is encourage people to come out on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesdays, which is great. So it didn't. It had a slight shift, but not massive from the remainder of the week. So the overall gain was quite substantial. 
And Alex Crepe raises other factors that may be influencing people. That's just only been on last weekend, purely because it's been so hot as well. I, people have been away. Um, it is August. People do go on holidays. The vacations are going up. So it, we don't have enough information to, to confirm that. But yeah, I mean, you'd assume that people would say, OK, well, rather than spend the money on a Sunday, we'll just come in tomorrow. And at Parker's Tavern? Well, I've got to say, Saturday's OK in our book here. Um, Sunday's not bad either. Um, Fridays are fr- Fridays are not, not too bad. So, you know, I'm touching wood because I'm uh, terribly superstitious. But it's not overall, it's just not too bad. With The wonderful people of Cambridge have really come out in force and supported us uh, um, at our weakest, you know. We're not going to forget what we came from. We're not going to forget... Uh, um, the, the, the troubles that we've had and the reasons why we're cutting back the um, tables by half. So it's um, a little nod to the issues that are ongoing, but with a bright view to the future. But are people pigging out? Is there a risk that obesity will grow? Max Freeman reports people actually going for more expensive dishes to treat themselves. You know, your most expensive dish is all of a sudden at least £10 cheaper. Alex too says that people aren't eating more. It's just a normal busy shift. No, no, I think I think people are coming in and they're, they're buying what they normally would, and they're just pleasantly, pleasantly happy with the bill at the end. I think that no one's been take, taking the mick and no one's been taking advantage of the whole situation. It's, it's been just like a normal shift, a normal busy shift pre-COVID, and it's, we've not seen any of that style of people that are just over-ordering because they want to have to have all the amount for the same price. Not, not here anyway. So far, so good. But there are concerns. Here's Alex again. Our only concern, it will definitely reflect, I think, in a lot of people's minds, is um, the government scheme is good for August, um, Monday to Wednesday. However, are the people that are coming in to your restaurant today with percent giving you the business, are they going to come back in September or October, November and do the same thing with a full price? Or are they just taking advantage of the discount? Adding to that, with the government now confirming that we are in a recession, are people going to be even more restricted to spending their money? So it's good for a short period uh, to promote it. However, long term, I think it would just be a blip. And over at Cam's Cuisine, Max makes the point that for places who can serve outdoors, the weather is an important factor because when the weather changes and eating outdoors isn't an option, will all the customers be happy to go indoors? Tristan Welch has concerns too about what next month might bring. I've got to say we're nervous about that. Mm. We are nervous about that um, and we are cautious about how many team members we can employ right now when we're busy because next month we might not be so busy. You know, um, There's been a recession announced today so uh, we're timid and we're worried uh, um, but a little bit, a little bit gung-ho at the same time. And looking further ahead, Max Freeman. Another rainy day, so to speak, because this is a 
concerned. Who knows what's going to happen in September, October, and November? My personal feeling is, well, the way I feel about it now would be this would be a great sort of promotion to kick again in January or February when traditionally businesses are quiet anyway. Alex Creppy, who's from Amelie in the Grafton Centre, also appreciates what Rishi Sunak has done this month. Rishi, that's doing an enormous amount of help for the, for, for the hospitality industry, doing his best to keep us surviving, which is fantastic, and we really appreciate it. But it's hoping that people carry on spending money in these establishments, I think, with the closures of most of the chains. And I, I wouldn't even be surprised that in a year's time, any chains, you see today on the high street will be completely different aside from a few pizza expresses and maybe five guys but uh, nando's but after that i think it'll be a completely flip around and um hopefully that will bring people to more independence and that was max freeman from kem's cuisine alex crepe from amelie and tristan welch from parker's tavern well you were at parker's uh, tavern uh, on wednesday so were you tempted to eat more or eat more expensively slightly more expensively it was a nice chance to perhaps go for a dish I wouldn't have thought slightly I would go for because it was a bit more extravagant but otherwise it was just lovely to be back there in a lovely atmosphere yeah okay well on to our first news break now and over the tracks is back you may remember them from 2015 they feature thirsty steak and honor and other food trucks They'll be next to the Belfast Bed Superstore on the Industrial Estates just off Coldham's Lane tonight, Saturday, and on the 22nd, 29th and 30th of August from 5.30 to 10.30pm. Besides Steak and Honour and Thirsty, who will be bringing craft beers, ciders and natural wines, on the 29th will be The Cook's Nest, and on Sunday the 30th, Kura Kura. There'll be music from DJs as well. Meanwhile, back at Thirsty HQ in Chesterton Road, there are food trucks again. On the 19th of August, it's Steak and Honour, 20th, Buffalo Joe's, 22nd, Gorilla Kitchen, 26th, Steak and Honour, 27th, Pizza Mondo, and 28th, Buffalo Joe's. And speaking of Thirsty, good luck to the main man behind Thirsty, Sam Owens. He's off with his Australian wife, roundabout now, to live in Australia for a couple of years. He'll still be guiding Thirsty, though it will be left in the very capable hands of the general manager, Georgia. So, best wishes to Sam. Brewboard in Harston has reopened. There's a tour going on at this very moment, so you've missed out on that, but there's another scheduled for 12th September from 1 to 3pm. Yeah, and if you're quick, you can go to Eddington Market Square right now, Saturday, where Kura Kura and Buffalo Joe's will be there until 2pm. Or take a more leisurely approach by getting a pizza mondo from North Stowe between 5 and 8pm tonight. Or something from Gorilla Kitchen, who are at the Social Club in Cottenham from 6 till 9 tonight. You'll need to pre-order from both of these trucks, as you will at many of them. Check their details. This week was Allotment Appreciation Week. Now, we've done many recordings from Cambridge Allotments over the years, so here are a few bits and pieces sandwiched together as an appreciation of allotments and just how rewarding they can be. Have you had this allotment for very long? Yes, quite a long time. Years ago I had an allotment, but gave it up for various reasons. Too much to do, really. Mm. Now I've got time. It doesn't look much at the moment, but, you know... The great thing I like about it is that it's got a lovely plum tree there and a, an apple tree there. 
And like you don't have to do anything to them. They're there and they have loads of plums on it come September. Yeah. And yeah. like you don't have to do anything, you know, it's just there and it's yeah. yours, you know. That, yeah. That's what I like about it. You don't have to dig anything, you don't have to <laughs> no, well, prune anything, like you know, it just <laughs> every year it just keeps on giving us vast amounts of plums, which is fantastic, you know. Yeah. <laughs> I share my allotment with my son, you see. I have just that little plot there, and that's enough for me. These are um, purple sprouting broccoli, yes? Yes, they are. I need to pick them today and have them for supper. Oh, I've got some white, look. Oh, yeah, yeah. And look at that, that butterfly, peacock. You see the rhubarb? Yeah. Come right, two feet. Come round this I'm way. I'm blind. <laughs> if we get the shadow on him, he'll fly very, very slowly. Oh, I see him now. Isn't he beautiful? Yes. He's quite small, isn't he? There he goes. There he goes. That's what spring means He's... to me, really. And the butterflies come. Oh, two of them. Two of them. I don't know where his mate's gone. Just popped down the shops, I think. <laughs> Possibly. <laughs> but it can be quite solitary. So that's, I think, is the great thing about allotment. You're doing something, it's a communal thing, but at the same time, you're by yourself. Yeah. It's a nice thing. It's a nice feeling that you're, you're with people. And if you do prefer working with people, then here's a different kind of allotmenteering. If you head down to Brooklands Avenue, you'll find the Empty Common Community Gardens. This garden is running alongside the conduit. Yes, yeah, so there's Hobson's Conduit on one side, Vickers Brook on the other side. Mm. We're surrounded by water and trees. Yes. What could be better in the middle of Cambridge? <laughs> you wouldn't really know it was the middle of Cambridge, would you? No, you wouldn't. No. I mean, aside from... Apart from the odd plane, yeah, no control over those things. <laughs> this is Charlotte Singh, the organiser. I suppose I gardened quite a bit as a child, but I was more interested in animals. But then I did a degree in environmental biology. But I found myself sort of spending a lot of time in the lab, mm. and I need to be outside, and I was just too much in the lab, so I thought, well, I'll start gardening. Yeah. I'm into permaculture, like Dave Fox. Mm-hmm. So really, I suppose I'm a permaculturist, an environmentalist, and a gardener. It's not just one thing. Look at nature mm-hmm. and copy it a bit. Instead of trying to work over it, if we work with it, then life can be a lot easier. So that's where I come from, and that's why I actually am involved with this garden. It's a community garden. That is the most important thing about it. And it's full of people who all do different things. All this can go, yeah? No, these must stay. What are these? You know, someone really likes sowing seeds, someone really likes digging. It makes the whole thing work better than it would as an individual. I mean, the sum is greater than... The whole is greater than the sum of its parts. Definitely. Yeah. And yourself, sir? Uh, yeah. No, it's my partner. Fiona's <laughs> the main allotment person. I, I just get come along when there's hard work to be done. <laughs> the heavy work, like, yes. Shifting uh, all that soil at the back there and putting it in bags and taking it to the dump. But yeah, she's the creative side of the so, Come and join. We're doing a radio thing. The dog wants to sing a song. <laughs> oh, the dog wants to sing a song. Hello, you. Oh, you're gorgeous. <laughs> She's really good with the community radio. Is she? She, is. she plays all sorts of instruments. Oh. <laughs> and songs she sings is extraordinary. There we are. Not bad oh. for a dog. 
What a beautiful dog. So Ian was instrumental in getting this garden going. Oh, well, I know. I was just one of the individuals that encouraged the city council to uh, provide a space for the community to work collaboratively. Well, I think even the city council officers have been amazed by how well it's gone. I mean, this was just a sea of mud five years ago. You'll never grow in that area. Mm. It's waterlogged. And it's lovely now. It's a proper place, yeah. Do you know you can hear rhubarb growing? I did not know that. Yeah. No. So you know when it's got those lovely, great big sort of tight buds, and they go as they burst open a little bit more. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> They're not just doing impressions of you, are they? No, no, no. <laughs> no. That's me doing an impression of rhubarb. Ah, Charlotte can do a range of impressions of different plant noises. <laughs> Sweet peas are her best. <laughs> The wild garlic noise. You make as well as <laughs> I'm not doing that one. <laughs> not even for the radio. One, two, three, four. When you look at the website for this place, it says you're an organic garden, so therefore mm-hmm. you still need to combat pests. So how do you fend them off? We've tried coffee. Might work slightly. We tried ash around them and doesn't work great. Slugs are really persistent little beasts. We accept that's part of permaculture. We have these three ethics, you know, sort of earth care, people yeah. care and fair shares. And the slugs get their fair share. <laughs> I think it's fair to say that. But some of the plastic bottles have a copper strip around them. Oh, yes. Because slugs don't like copper. Mm. Yeah, they short out, basically, as bits of their body go over it, apparently. I think they get a horrible tingling. They also employ wildlife to keep order in the garden. Because Mm. it's the wildlife that controls the pests. So we've got a slug problem. So we put in some hedgehog boxes. In that ash tree up there, we've got bat box. Hopefully they'll eat all the codling moth. <laughs> we won't get maggots in our apples, yeah. I mean, blue tit family will eat thousands of aphids mm. in a season and loads of little caterpillars and things, so why not keep them? We've got an old teapot up there, which we hope will become a wren box. We're trying to get the ivy to grow round it. One quick question. At the foot of some of the beds, you've got a tennis ball on a stick. What's the significance? That's to stop you poking your eye out when you look down. Ah. It's very easy to poke <laughs> your eyes out when you look down. You've been in Cambridge a long time? Since 59. Quite a long time. It's our first allotment in the 60s, and when the children were young. But when the second child came, he took worms and soil, and so we gave it up. <laughs> it was difficult. And there wasn't any water down here. And I used to come down with the pram with bottles of water where you can get, you can water things. So everybody has a steady supply? Everybody can have water, yes. Mm. It made a lot of difference. Those are artichokes. Oh, they are artichokes? Yes. Well, I've got rhubarb up there. Do you want to look at it? Oh, yeah. And and recognise it? Yeah. (laughs) This is rhubarb, here. Would you like some? That would be great, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) How many people would you be feeding? Two. Two? Two. That's probably enough. So now what you need to do is you cut it up Uh and bring it to the boil 
and then immediately throw away the water and then put a little more water in and cook it for about five minutes. What's the significance of getting rid of the boiling water in them? There's so much acid. And then cook it up in cold water brought to the boil for five minutes? Yes, I think throw away the water immediately, put a little more water in, sugar, and cook it for five minutes. Lovely. So you're looking forward to many months being out in the sun. Yes, yeah, it's yeah. great. I mean, we've got a south-facing plot. It's great. <laughs> I'm very envious of all of these allotments. Well, one day you'll have an allotment when you're a grandpa. Won't you? <laughs> <laughs> Time for some more news now. There's a Japanese street food cook-it-yourself service in Cambridge. It's called Areno. The menu includes chicken kushitaki, pork kushiyaki, and beef kushiyaki. And there's also machamisu, a version of tiramisu that uses green tea instead of espresso. They're on Instagram, and their website is areno.co.uk. I'll spell that for you. That's O-R-E-N-O. Areno. Now, on Cambridge Market, one of the many traders whose produce we enjoy is Bagel Box. Now, Alex, who runs Bagel Box, is normally there on Tuesdays, Wednesdays and Sundays, but he will not be there on Tuesday and Wednesday, the 18th and the 19th of August, and he won't be there either on the 1st or 2nd of September, but all other dates are as normal. The White Cottage Baking School has a five-day residential workshop in Tuscany this autumn. It features various visits, tastings and making cacciuccini, biscotti and pasta. Details are on the White Cottage Baking School website. Ever thought of using hawthorns to make a hot sauce? Rose hips to make a Turkish delight? Or elderberries to make a Pontac sauce? Well, here is the foraging chef. I'm with Steve Thompson and we're the beginning of August and it's weird weather, isn't it? Sun and rain. Yeah, today's not quite made its mind up. So yeah, we've had a lot of dryness recently and a lot of heat. So we were going to talk about some mushrooms, but that's just not going to happen yet. We need the wet. So hopefully hopefully next month we'll do a couple of weeks worth of rain now and we'll have some mushrooms out. We have found the odd thing. We've found some giant puffballs. We've found some branching oyster mushrooms. We found a few beliefs, but... We'll wait until we've got we've got a good variety to really talk about. So, first thing we're going to talk about this week, or month even, is uh, elderberries. And they're nice and easy to identify. They're pretty much everywhere in all the hedgerows. I'm sure lots of people have them in their gardens. In the current climate, good things to make with them are syrups. A spoonful of that every morning, very high in vitamin C, keeps you nice and healthy. We can make cordials out of it, we make jellies... They go well in jams. I don't like them on their own, but if you put them in with apples and stuff, that's lovely. But the main thing that we normally do with them is Pontac sauce. And it's an old English recipe. Basically, we steep them for a few hours in vinegar, and then we strain them all off, really squeeze them through, and then take that liquid, add a few spices, maybe some onions, some garlic, and then cook it down, reduce it nicely. Um, It's basically a ketchup. So you don't leave the elderberries in it? No, we don't. We strain them out. Because you steep them in vinegar, they've got a real, real vinegariness. And we then add all that pulp into the dehydrator and make a separate product out of that, which is almost like an elderberry vinegar powder. 
yes. which I'm not sure what use people would have at home for, but mm. in the restaurant we find plenty of uses. Do you? What would you use it in a restaurant for? Um, seasonings, basically. So you can add salt to it, and then you've got an elderberry salt and vinegar powder. You can use it to season your vegetables and add that acidity. It helps cut through. It's a way of getting acidity into a dish, basically. And does it matter what type of vinegar you use? I use cider vinegar, tend to. I think that works best, but I have seen recipes out there with white wine. I've seen recipes out there with balsamic and red wine vinegar. But cider vinegar, I think, works nicely. That sounds really nice. I know I've seen uh, ketchup recipes, or ketchup, as they sometimes call it, in some old recipe books. Well, I'll just have a go at this. Yeah, it's a great way of preserving. And obviously, as it's a vinegar, as long as you put it into sterile, clean jars, you really don't have to worry about that ever going off. That is just going to keep. You were mentioning about something I wouldn't have thought of using, rose bay willow herb. Yes, so that's something we've been doing the last few weeks uh, since it's come out into flower. Yeah, it's a plant in the willow herb family. It's got four petals, nice bright pink, red stem. It's, it's a fairly easy plant to identify. If you look at the leaves, the veins on the leaves don't actually touch the edge. They're circular and it's quite exclusive in that. Um, we make something called Ivan's Chai or Ivan's Tea, which is a fermented tea, mainly from, I think it originates from Russia, to be honest, which hence the name. But it's got lovely, earthy, floral, really herby notes to it, and it really works well. As far as fermentation with it goes, I'm not quite sure it really is a fermented tea. I'd say it's more of an oxidised tea, but it's really easy to make. So what you do is you pick the leaves and some of the flowers and leave them just to dry out in your basket for 12 hours. Uh, even overnight is fine, that's not a problem. And then when you come to the next day, you want to really rub them, really bruise all those leaves up, and then leave them to go black. It'll take a couple of days. Once they've gone black, then you dry it out, and then you can get it in your pestle and mortar and grind it all up, as if you're making a tea, and then store it. So it's, it is more of an oxidation than a fermentation, we have been this year playing around with actually fermenting the leaves. We, we, we add extra sugar to it and everything to help the process go and it's not something that really I think is worth doing. I think it's much better doing the rubbing and it mm. brings out a lovely tea. So we've been making ricotta cheeses out of it and using it to infuse in that and also just drinking it at home. You said you dry it out so you could use a dehydrator or very low oven I presume. Yeah, dehydrator, low oven, windowsill when it's been this sunny, outside if it's sunny enough, airing cupboards just hang it up in bunches in your house as long as you've got good circulation sounds rather nice and anything else you'd be recommending yeah so uh certain things are in flower at the moment so we've still got the fennel that's in flower so anything wild fennel at the moment we've been taking the flowers from it and dehydrating them blending it up into what is basically fennel pollen which has got a lovely flavour. It's a really nice spice that we keep for all year round. Um, the other thing that means that they're in flower, obviously, them and Angelica, means the seeds are coming. And both Angelica and wild fennel both have beautiful and easy flavoured seeds. So we're just waiting for that to go to seed at the moment and then we're going to... Uh, stock up our spice racks. I think some of ours have gone to seed, but again, do you just take the heads off, shake them in a paper bag? Yeah, exactly that. It's very simple. They can dry out on the plant, dry them out yourself. So either way, I tend to prefer not leaving the seeds onto the plant to dry completely, because I find that it's a very fine line between getting it right and over. I tend to pick a lot of the seeds when they're greener and dry them out myself in the dehydrator. Goes for a lot of plants, so hogweeds and Angelica's, Alexander's, a lot of the carrot family that we pick the seeds for, we dry out ourselves. I find it consistent. 
Could you do, as you suggested, just pick the seed heads and you know stick them in a vase on a windowsill and dry them like that? Yeah, exactly that. That would work nicely. And then you've got something underneath to catch everything. I find otherwise you can get quite empty seed heads if you just leave them that little, like even half a day too long. Then all the seeds have gone somewhere else <laughs> on the ground. And another easy seed that's going around at the moment is poppy seeds. So obviously you do not get a lot and it takes a long time to harvest, but every, every poppy seed is edible. So as long as you know it's a poppy seed, a poppy seed head, give it a nice shake. I know we've got some, I think probably opium poppies, the, you know, those beautiful blousy poppy heads and those presumably are okay. We yes. won't get high. <laughs> you, there is traces in it, but absolute minute traces. You would have to eat a lot. It comes more from the sap, the opium the latex of the plant so you don't really have to worry about eating the poppy seeds it's no more or less dangerous than buying poppy seeds from a shop or on your loaf of bread because a lot of um, eastern european and russian recipes use poppy seeds do we have a history of using poppy seeds much in england yeah i don't know i haven't seen a lot of old recipes that call for it but i mean lemon and poppy seed cakes are breads if you go to any baker they're always covered in poppy seeds so I suppose we do, but yeah, not it's not something that really jumps out at you. And I'm sure there'll be biscuit recipes now. It's something I'm going to have to look into after this now. Because it's not something I've ever come across doing any of the medieval-style research and everything like that. I've never really seen us use much poppy seeds, so... Any others you would recommend now? So at the moment we're just picking a lot of plums, really. A lot of the pruners family. But keep an eye on the hedgerows at the moment. So over the next couple of weeks we're looking at rose hips. All of them are edible got really good vitamin c really nice flavors make nice rosehip cordials again things like that then you can turn that into uh, rosehip delight which is kind of like a richer version of turkish delight you're still using the same plant not quite as floral but much more berry notes and much more kind of full-bodied and that works nicely and also hawthorn berries ah yes we've got quite a few of those near us i wasn't sure they were edible yes the berry is the seed isn't so whatever you make just pass the seeds out the seeds you'd have to crunch so we tend to do things where we don't blend it we tend to crush it and then we pass it through and then we work on it after that you'd have to eat a few fair few seeds again and they'd have to be crushed in to do any damage so it's absolutely fine we tend to like bring things up to the boil bring it up to a simmer and then push it through push right. it through a fine sieve right so soften them first basically make yeah. it a bit pulpy yeah and then get all the pulp and everything pushed through ketchups are the classic one again with hawthorn but we like to um, ferment ferment the hawthorn berries with uh, chilies and things like that and then make a really nice hawthorn hot sauce which works absolutely brilliantly the fermentation process kind of gives it the vinegariness that you get almost from like a like buffalo sauce like american which is like cayenne and vinegars and things like that you can make that with the hawthorn and fermenting it and it works really well again how long would you have to ferment for it depends. I mean, you do a lot by eye, but quite a lot of those berries, if you catch them when they're really ripe, you can get them done in four days. They don't need as long as you'd expect. They do tend to go quite a lot quicker. Could you talk me through exactly how you do that? So at the moment, my pack machine is broken. I prefer to do it under vacuum, which is much easier. So if you've got a vacuum machine, put it in your vacuum bag, weigh it out, add 2% salt, shake it up, seal it wait till the bag fully expands that's basically it it's the safest easiest way but we're doing it at home at the moment we're doing it with mason jars um it's still pretty easy and as long as everything's sanitary so you've just we sterilize it all just before we do it 
we put the berries into the mason jar, fill it up with water, we weigh all of that together. And then we add our tenter. Different things take different percentages, but for the hawthorn berries, I would add 2% salt as well for that. Um, but you include the water weight with that. I found that when you do it without the water weight in the jars, the risk of mold is higher. Um, you do have a risk of mold. If you see mold, that's it, just chuck it out. This is why I prefer the VatPat method because it is pretty much foolproof. I've never ever had anything grow mold in a vacuum machine. But yeah, you leave it, you'll see it start to work. It needs no air, so you do want to put the lid on. But that's why I like using mason lids. I'll just do a quarter of a turn and then you can burp it every day. So just open it up every morning and just let some of that air out. If it's really hot like it has been this week, we've been, we've been venting or burping them twice a day because there's a lot more activity. You don't want to forget about it and leave it because eventually it will explode. <laughs> and tiny little bombs in your kitchen are never good. Not a good <laughs> idea, particularly not with a baby around. <laughs> no, not useful with a baby around, no. no. no exactly. <laughs> So that sounds probably about it for this month. Yeah, that's about it at the moment. Keep an eye on your plums and everything, as I say, because we've been preserving loads of them still. And it's a great, easy way to uh, have a cheap dessert every night. Thank you very much, Steve. Until next month. Thanks, Steve. See you later. And that was Steve Thompson, the foraging chef from The Plough in Shepworth. Every year I say I'll make contact sauce, but I never manage it. Uh, Do you think you'll make anything from those suggestions, Sue? Well, I'm very tempted to use our rosettes that we've got growing outside to make the Turkish delight. So I might have a go. Well, bring us some if you do. I will. <laughs> and I'll give you some Pontac sauce. Fair enough. <laughs> I'm free. I'm free. Here's where we bring you details of free food available in and around Cambridge. The information comes from the Olio app, which is free to download. Yeah, and people are adding items to the Olio app quite frequently, and they go very fast. Now, recently added has been uh, Pret-a-Manger food bags, including two Italian chicken salads and two prosciutto baguettes. Also being given away was a bag of plums, some lettuce, cabbage, and fresh mint. And have a look at the other free app called Too Good To Go, which several food outlets in and around Cambridge use to sell any unsold goods they have shortly before they close at knockdown prices. And there's good news for chocolate lovers. Hill Street's two stores in Saffron Walden and in All Saints Passage in Cambridge will reopen on the 1st of September, as will their online store. Mercado Central is reopening on the 19th of August. They'll be open from Tuesday to Saturday in the evening and also at lunchtime on Saturdays. Paul the Fishman will be as usual at Thurwash Larder on Tuesday from 11 to 1pm and he's then off for a two-week holiday. Also at Burwash Larder, Gourmandise's marvellous tarts are back on sale. Now, as well as launching the Eat Out to Help Out scheme, the government has embarked on a strategy to reduce obesity, partly because of the data that shows the increased impact on COVID-19 on people who are obese. Giles Yeo is a Principal Research Associate at the Department of Clinical Biochemistry in the University of Cambridge. I asked him if the government should be doing this and whether it's got the strategy right. I do think the government has a big role to play um, because obesity is a public health problem and I think that public health problem needs public health solutions and who's in charge of public health? It would be the government. So, So I think the government in trying to tackle it is doing the right thing, yes. 
Right. And is it doing it in the right way? Has it got it? Has it got the strategy right? Do you think? <laughs> well, that's the sixty-four million dollar question. <laughs> so I mean, so look, I I study obesity and I study the causes and consequences of obesity. And let's just we, we throw a couple of things out of the way so people understand this. I think undoubtedly, if you're living with obesity, you will suffer far more from COVID nineteen. Okay, so that's the that's the first bit, bit of information. However, uh, obesity has been a problem before COVID and will be a problem long after COVID is done. Um, and we are part of a government-funded unit that studies obesity. So I'm fully supportive of actions to try and reduce the levels of obesity in, in, in this country. The problem is, I think that the government, some of their plan is evidence-based, okay? Um, and I think is useful and certainly forms part of a useful debate. Other bits of their program um, and their new uh, solution and strategy, I think, leave much to be desired. So I think if we think about the headlines, I think what they're saying is that they're going to try and ban adverts um, for high sugar, high salt food for kids before the, in inverted commas, watershed, I think 9 p.m. or something like that. Yeah, 9 p.m., yeah. 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 And then also to try and uh, stop the bulk buy deals, buy one, get one free type deals um, of those same items in supermarkets and, 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 other, and other places. And that there's going to be, they want to encourage people to be more active and they want to, they, there'll be a big uh, advertisement campaign push to try and get us to all become healthier. Okay, I think those were the headlines. There were a few, few, more, few more things. Now, I think the, the most powerful of, um, of those are probably, is probably the advertisement campaign. And the reason I say this is because it is the reason why advertisers pay so much money to actually do the advertising is, look, money speaks, advertisement works. And so when you're trying to push certain types of items, particularly to uh, kids and teenagers, you know, they are being influenced. And I do think that therefore tackling the advertising is, 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 is a good thing. The big issue I have with that, however, is what is unhealthy? I mean, are they using lazy classist tropes to call un- unhealthy, like McDonald's or Burger King, you know, other these, these fast food, that's unhealthy. And I think we all could say, maybe if we eat too much of it. But a fancy burger from a fancy restaurant, is that unhealthy? You know, uh, what are we, are they actually going to take the time to look at the nutritional content of the food? Or are they just going to be saying, all fast food is unhealthy, and if it's from a fancy restaurant, it's not. I just need to be more comfortable with what they are considering unhealthy and not unhealthy and not trying just to say what people think is unhealthy. So that's, the, that's, that's I think, is the first thing. So something yeah. like a, a nicely ripe brie, presumably, is high, very high in fat. And salt. Okay. So the, the lazy government trope wouldn't include something like brie, but it would include, well, as you said, burgers yeah and and, and outlook okay, and before people start the, uh, uh, throwing cheese at me i'm not saying that we want to ban brie or, or, or but but that's exactly a case in point okay but why is one food that is equally high in sugar and salt not sugar but but salt and fat better or worse than another i uh, just another cl- classic example okay you, you're gonna ban uh fizzy pop for example Coca-Cola, Pepsi-Cola, what, what have you. What are you going to do with orange juice? I mean, orange juice has as much sugar as Coca-Cola. It's exactly the same sugar. 
Okay, are you gonna tax Coca-Cola, which they do now, but not tax orange juice? Why? And, and I'm just thinking that if we're gonna be able, if we're gonna tackle this correctly, then we have to look at the nutritional content of the food and make decisions about what we do uh, based on the nutritional content rather than what they're called. And I think that, to my mind, it's at least then using an evidence-based approach to trying to get us to eat healthier. Should we, should orange juice be banned? I'm, I'm assuming that when you say orange juice, you're just talking literally the juice from an orange with no added sugar. That's that's correct. That's just the juice from, from an orange. And you might say, well, but orange juice has more vitamin C. Yes, it has a little bit more vitamin C, but the main issue is the sugar. Uh, why is orange juice worse for you than an orange, you might say? Because an orange, after all, is the source of orange juice. And the big difference, two things. First is dose. You, you know, it takes maybe what? I don't know, five oranges or something like that to make a glass of orange juice. You only ever eat really one or two oranges. Or, or oranges. They kind of come in like a, a prepackaged uh, um, thing. And so, so that's the first thing. Second, the, the presence of fiber slows the release of the sugar when you actually eat it. And that is the absolute critical thing. So I think if you want something like orange juice, eat an orange would be mine. Would be my I suppose the government can only get away with so much, can't it? And since in most people's minds, orange juice equals good and various fizzy drinks equal bad, it doesn't, I don't know, risk a public opprobrium for being the nanny state, I suppose. I see why they're doing it, because it's easier. Okay, But what happens when you end up using these... Uh, categories in order to ban or tax or, or, or reduce is you always disproportionately I, to my mind you always disproportionately it's classist you, you disproportionately affect people who are more likely to buy one item versus versus the uh, versus the other and I think that is not that is not a good thing there is also this huge and this is the thing which I, I, it's like someone in government is not talking to each other then this whole banning buy one get one free deal is entirely in conflict with their eat out to help out scenario a we're trying to tell people to get to to not buy food but then giving the uh, giving a certain type of food half off what are you trying to do i think with deeper thought they could have helped the restaurants but yet use the money that same pot of money to incentivize healthier options and i think the left arm was not talking to the right arm or whatever that saying is what is clear is uh, the best data has come from the sugar tax uh, within uh, places like Mexico. One of two things has happened. It has driven down what people have bought, but actually, more critically, a lot of the companies have uh, actually reformulated their drinks to actually get it below the line of maximum sugar. Has this translated to reduction in obesity? Mm. I don't know if this has gone long enough to do so, and I don't know if just tackling the drinks is going to solve the problem. Given the urgency of the situation in this country at the moment with, with COVID and obesity, what, what realistically could the government have done differently, do you think? I mean, we're talking about a very short time frame, aren't we? This is not a short term. Whatever the government wants to do, and I understand why they want to do it, trying to do it in a short-term scenario to try and rush people to, to, to lose weight is the equivalent of trying to run a marathon on a couple of days training. It's, it's nigh on impossible. 
I, I'm not trying to be negative. I'm just giving you the biology. It's nigh on impossible to get a population to lose a significant amount of weight in because their aim is to try and get us to lose enough weight, just a few percentage points of weight, so that it mitigates the health problems of a notional wave two of the virus. Okay, so this is yeah. a short term six month thing. And I think the weight loss is going to be difficult to achieve during that time, if only because we're human beings and it's just if we hate to, to, to lose weight. Um, I think they'd be, it's plausible that they can try and get us healthier by trying to get us to move a bit more. That is, uh, um, that's plausible, but that will not result in weight loss. So I, I think the big issue here is that the government needs to be thinking longer term than just COVID, even though COVID is the, the, the clear and present danger here. Um, it needs to understand that body weight in of itself is not a choice. Okay? It is a, it's just not a choice. Um, and they have to take responsibility in terms of the uh, society, the food environment, the built environment, in addition to trying to help people make better choices. You've you, you got to make the healthier choice, the easier, more convenient choice and cheaper choice. So, so just let me just explain what I mean when I say that obesity is not a choice, because obviously in order to become obese, you have to eat too much, right? And so you might say, well, hang on a second, you're choosing to eat that slice of pizza. What are you talking about? Of course it's a choice. But you have to remember that you, we do not gain or lose weight overnight, right? Our body weight is the function of thousands of different uh, food choices we have made, each of which might be binary, but thousands of different food choices over many years. But imagine if because of your biology, and this is now what we know, because of your biology, because of your genes, you are, say, 5% less likely to say no. Now, 5% over thousands of meals is tens of thousands of calories over many years, which is why some people are small, medium, and large. So while each individual food choice is a choice, if you actually take a sum total of your likelihood of saying yes or no to a specific food choice, somebody is always going to be more likely to say yes or more likely to say no, and therefore they're different sizes. Back in the Victorian times or World War II times or what have you, we did, we did eat more calories. Okay, actually, in actual amount of calories, we ate more. But two things. First, we were a lot more active, not in terms of exercise, but because everything was more manual labor. We had to do everything by hand. Okay? But secondly, the food was not as processed. Okay, so these were the, so they're just not as processed. A lot of processed foods are, are, were, were there, then milk is processed, bread is processed, but it's not as processed. Why does this make a difference? Because it affects the caloric availability of, of food. So caloric availability is the amount of sugar that you can, the amount of calories you can get from a food versus the amount of total calories within the food. So for example, if you ate 100 calories of sugar, you get 100 calories of sugar because it's sugar. Whereas if you ate 100 calories of sweet corn, <laughs> corn on the cob, and then you looked in the loo the next day, you'd see that you haven't absorbed anywhere close to, to, the, to, to 100 calories. So, so what happens is if you actually process, but if you take that sweet corn, dry it and make it into a cornmeal and then make a corn tortilla or cornbread out of it, suddenly that processing means that a lot more of the calories are available. So the problem is today, we eat a lot more, what the, the, the term, I don't quite like it, but it's the term used, ultra processed food. So these are foods that are really, really, really processed. They have long shelf life and therefore they're very cheap. Uh, and and therefore, that is what people, uh, uh, particularly the poorer in society, are able to afford and to buy. But the calories there 
for every 100 calories you eat, you get a lot more calories out of that food compared to, say, eating 100 calories of steak, for example. The, the, the big issue is that human beings are human beings. We will always pick the easiest route because, so in order for us to make the decision, the correct decision, you gotta make the choice to make the healthier, the lower fat, the lower sugar, the lower salt option actually cheaper and more convenient to make. You gotta make it the easier option for human beings to do this day after day after day. And if you do that, then you actually are, are on your way to trying to fix the obesity problem. Our thanks to Jars Yeo. His book, Gene Eating, is out now. Yeah, and incredibly interesting it is too. And there's the music that normally signals time for the latest food tweets from the city for today, Saturday. Uh, but today, we'll use it to remind you that as well as being on Twitter, Flavour can be found on Instagram too, at Flavour105. Felicity Cloak is a food writer whose most recent book, One More Croissant for the Road, is out now in paperback. Now, Alan spoke with her last year about the book, in which she recounts her cycling around France in search of not only the best croissant, but the best regional dishes too. So, here is an extract, and Alan began by asking her just why she did it. So I've always liked cycling, and I've long had a love of France. My mum was a French teacher, you know, we were sort of steeped in it. It was very, you know, the time when Peter Mayle was very big, and, you know, everything, everything was France. France was exotic. And so I've always loved it, and I'd love cycling, and a friend of mine actually suggested that we cycled, a group of us, we cycled from Calais to Brussels a few years ago. Just gave me the bug for how, how fun it is just to be on two wheels. There's an incredible freedom you know, you see the landscape change, and I just thought it would make a really great book. I thought, you know, there's a, we've <laughs> neglected France for a while in this country. I think we've been tempted by, you know, the first was Italy, and then much more exotic sort of food certainly have entered our diet, and that's brilliant. But I do think that we've all still got a little bit of nostalgic love for France, and I sort of I wanted to rediscover it, and I thought maybe other people would like to come along for the ride. I found the same dishes on restaurant menus around the country, you know, little roadside restaurants, nothing fancy. And, you know, you get your sweetbreads and you get your fish in white sauce and it's all very similar. And so I found that interesting in that certainly I think your average British diet would probably be very surprised. I know this is not what everyone eats at home in France, but still, I think we've got a much more adventurous palate than they have. You know, there was a woman, I was down in the south, and I ordered this wonderful dish of um, it's pasta and sort of uh, meatballs and then sausage and a spi- slightly spicy sort of pecan tomato sauce. And it's a speciality of set down on the Mediterranean coast because a lot of Italian sailors and dockers sort of migrated to the south of France in the 19th century. So there's quite a bit of Italian influence there. Anyway, and so I ordered this. I've been recommended it as a local speciality. And I was about to tuck in it. It had been a terrible day on the bike. It's very wet, even though I was on the south of France. And then the woman, I take my first mouthful and the waitress rushed over, you know, really apologetic and says, oh, madame, I forgot to tell you, it's very spicy. Be careful. And I nearly laughed in her face. It was so, it was no spicier than, you know, sweet and sour chicken or something. But, you know, in that, that chili is not a big part, you know, of, of their diet, even in the South. 
and I found myself craving things like chilli sauce etc but in general I found the food I would say that French food although certainly I'm sure not as good as it, it used to be is much better than you can find without research in the UK and you can get some wonderful food here now but you have to really do your research beforehand in France you can get some mediocre food it's easy but the standard generally was decent and it was home cooked and yeah it was quite samey but it was about you know they valued the local ingredients and cooking that I more rarely find in this country. When I read the book I mean I was struck actually by the regionalism of it mm. is that because when you were in a region you wanted to try the foods of that region even yes. though there were things on sale that you could get anywhere yeah I mean that's me anyway I think as a food writer I'm endlessly curious about food and greedy and so I always order the regional speciality even if I actually want something completely different I think oh no I need to have this special thing so I can only get here um, but certainly there are you know there are rules and for example when I was in Lorraine I really wanted to have a quiche Lorraine because I wanted to sort of, you know, I've been to Lorraine before but I don't think I've ever thought about quiche Lorraine as a particularly regional dish and when you think about it it is you know it's got that kind of Germanic influence to it with the sort of the lardons and it used to be made of bread dough as well anyway and so I was there and it must have been late June yeah it was late June and I couldn't find a quiche Lorraine anywhere and eventually I asked uh, some people in a bar and they said, um, oh, no, you, you, won't find it. Um, you won't find it in June. It's a winter dish. Can you imagine going to Bakewell in Derbyshire and being told you won't find a Bakewell tart here? <laughs> See, there's the most famous thing, certainly, in the UK from Lorraine. And no, no quiche. Uh, no, I did find no. some in the end in a bakery, but they clearly thought I was very eccentric for ordering it. So, yeah, it's not only regional, but very seasonal as well. One of the uh, one of the other things that struck me was what I would call the sort of the extreme carnivorous nature of some of the the dishes. Yes, there's a passage here. I mean, I wonder if you could read that paragraph. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so this is in Lyon, in a Bouchon in Lyon, um, which is sort of quite a rustic restaurant where they serve wine from the barrel. The table fills with vast bowls of pressed pig snout, soft pink sausage and the best tripe I've ever tasted, which frankly is a low bar. This particular bovine stomach clears with ease, giving it tastes of neither bleach nor shit, allowing us to appreciate its intriguingly bouncy, frilly texture without any such unpleasant distractions. Plus some lentil vinaigrette as a token nod to fibre. And that was just the start. Afterwards, we had calf's head. We had um, some deep-fried tripe, which is a Leonese speciality, um, which, oddly enough, has the... It's called um, Fireman's Apron, and no-one seems to know why, but it's sort of deep-fried slabs of tripe. Uh, surprisingly delicious. And, uh, you know, all sorts. The, the entriette. Yeah, the entriette yeah. was um, actually, again, the best entriette that I've tasted. Uh, I don't know, you know, that I would seek it out again, but I like to try these things to check check on myself <laughs> right thanks very much Felicity my pleasure thank you. thank you Felicity Cloak's book is called Another Croissant for the Road it's a hugely enjoyable book unusually useful too not only does it have the story but also recipes including for tartiflette cassoulet and naturally for croissants so a very valuable companion if you're going to France whatever your mode of travel and you can hear the whole interview on our podcast of the 22nd of June last year. Yeah. 
And there's Green Onion signalling the start of our jobs section. And Provenance Kitchen, where they cook over coals at their base in Whittlesford and in their Airstream truck, are looking for a trainee chef. Pay is between 15 to 18k per year. Olive Grove in Cambridge's Regent Street wants a junior sous chef. You must have experience though. And the Basti Hotel needs a chef de party. Grill experience is necessary. The job is up to 25 hours a week and the pay is between £9.50 to £11 per hour. Two chef jobs in Green King pubs, so you can apply via the Green King website. One is at the Prince Regent in Regent Street, Cambridge, and the other is at the Milton Arms in Milton. And that's all the time we have for today. Don't forget we are here on Alternate Saturdays at 1, repeated on Sunday at 2, Monday at 6, and our podcast follows early in the next week. Now, coming up next on Cambridge 105 Radio today is Classical Cambridge, followed by Polish Waves at 5 o'clock, covering the reopening of the Chesterton Sports Centre and a chat with local online yoga teacher. At 6pm, it's Cambridge United, Game of the Decade, as Ollie Slack and Tim Armitage cover some of the most memorable matches of the last 10 years from the Abbey Stadium, as selected by the fans. The business of Cambridge is at 6.30, followed by the big band show at 7. Let the Good Times Roll is at 8, Rebel Arts Radio is at 9, and we finish the day's broadcast with Stagger at 10. But that's all from us. We'll be back on the 29th of August, but until then, goodbye. Goodbye. Goodbye.